Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus. Amen. It is the first Sunday in Advent, dear saints of God. It's a brief season of the church year that culminates in an evening service, a service of hymns and readings telling the beautiful story about Mary and Joseph and how they traveled to Bethlehem, the newborn baby laid gently in the straw. An Advent, of course, means coming. You know that. Uh, it works out wonderfully that we celebrate that season at this time of year, anticipating the celebration of Christ's first coming, as we said, the baby in the manger, but also his second coming in power and great glory at the end of time to judge the earth, to separate the wheat from the chaff and to bring a harvest into heaven. Isaiah and Mark both talk in our readings about uh, this coming of Christ. The gospel lesson might seem a little surprising to us as we, we tend to have our minds focused more on the manger than on the cross. And that seems more like Easter week to us. But here Jesus, I mean Mark relates Jesus coming to Jerusalem for the final time. His triumphal entry, we call it. And as the crowds shout, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And Hosanna is a Hebrew word that means save us or save us now. And the crowd is calling for Jesus to be that Messiah, to be the one who would bring salvation to them. Salvation from the Romans, right, from the the occupying nation of Rome and from the evil of that day. And at this point, or in this point, Mark is sort of paralleling the Isaiah reading. So I'd like you to follow along, if you want to, with the Isaiah reading, beginning at the first verse of chapter 64. It's right near the end of the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah writes, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. And Isaiah is... Uh, calling for God to come down like he did at Mount Sinai when the mountain trembled and it was filled with smoke and fire. The call is for God to come near, to tear the heavens apart, to rend them and see the plight of his people. Isaiah, in his ministry, he witnesses the taking of the northern kingdom when Syria comes and lays siege to Samaria and then takes the northern kingdom into captivity. Isaiah is prophet at that time. And he wants God to come down. He wants God to fix this thing. And he's also 
as a prophet looking forward to the destruction and the captivity of the southern kingdom of Judah when Babylon will come in. And these were about 150, 160 years apart, these two events. And so the second hasn't happened yet, but Isaiah sees it. And he's calling for God to come, to see the oppression of his people, and to do something. Make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. And then verse 4, From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No one has seen a God besides you, who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Come down, God Almighty, and destroy evil and set things right. Come down and destroy the oppressors of your people because you, God, are on the side of righteousness. You meet him face to face, the one who works righteousness and who remembers your ways. And then we have verse 5. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved? See, God says he's on the side of the one who is righteous. But Isaiah acknowledges that Israel has not been acting righteous. In fact, for many, many years, they have been very idolatrous. That's why the northern kingdom got taken. That's why he's prophesying to the southern kingdom, change your ways. They've gone after other gods. They've ignored the obvious warning from God that he sent as Syria came in and swept up the northern kingdom. Isaiah confesses to Israel's unrighteousness. We see that in verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. And of course, this is the plight of all people, not just sinful Israel, but sinful humanity. Not just the people of that day, but the people of this day. And not just those out there but us in here as well. Paul writes in Romans 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. David in his psalm admits, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Isaiah says, God comes to meet the one who is righteous, the one who works righteousness. And we have to admit, that's not us. Our righteousness really looks and smells like a polluted garment. And maybe you have found a garment like that, or a rag or something like that. You, you, you leave a rag that's wet, you know, covered up, and you don't remember that. And boy, you pull that thing out. Or I think about the rags in my garage, maybe, that are full of grease that I keep using over and over again. I don't know why. Really, really dirty. But even those don't quite come to the level of what Isaiah is saying here. 
If you really read the words in Hebrew and you, you really translate them straight the way they should be translated, the rag is more like uh, maybe a, a baby's diaper that's been soiled. It's filthy, just filthy. Stinks to high heaven. You know, one of those top ten diaper changes. You say, honey, this, this one's yours. You know? That's what our garment is like. That's what our works of righteousness in our flesh are like. It's kind of a harsh, disgusting picture. And that's not, it's not something we talk about in polite company. And this is Isaiah's point. He's trying to shock the people of Israel and get them to listen, trying to get them to understand how holy and righteous God is and how he views our sin. It's no wonder then that Isaiah says in verse 7, God has hidden his face from Israel. What a terrible thing. That's what Israel deserves for their sin. They have abandoned God, turned their backs on him, it's what the people deserve. They deserve to have God turn his back on them. We've all earned that. Estrangement from God. Separation from God. But then look at verse 8. But now, O Yahweh, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Even though we have sinned against almighty and righteous God, and even though we deserve death and hell and all punishment from him, still he is our loving Father. And why is that? Not because we're trying really, really hard. That certainly is not going to clean our filthy garment. Is it because we're faithful church attenders? Is it because we're pretty good people, really? Of course not. It's because we are the work of his hand. This is why he loves us. This is why he is our father. And I love that imagery of, of the potter and the clay. Uh, and you can just think about how a potter works clay, but, but if you really think about it, you know, the potter takes this lump of nothing and slams it down on the wheel, you know, and then starts the wheel spinning and keeps the wheel spinning and puts his hand on the clay and starts to shape it and push it. He's got to push it in, right, mold it and bring it up, bring it higher. It's turning, turning, turning hand is smoothing it, getting it into the right shape that he wants. If you were the clay, you might be saying, ow, oh, don't push so hard. Oh, that hurts. I'm getting dizzy, you know, stuff like that. Puts his fingers down inside of it to make the inside cavity, squeezes it shut, you know, works it for a long time. Finally has this finished, beautiful piece. Maybe even tips it aside and writes his name on the bottom and sets it aside. Every piece handmade, every piece unique, every piece wonderful 
molded, shaped by loving fingers. And each one of you here, unique. Each one of you here, knit together in your mother's womb by the hand of God. Each one of you, special, beautiful creations of God. Each one of you made for a purpose. The potter doesn't make beautiful things to be broken apart and thrown on the trash heap. He makes them for a purpose. Paul begins his letter to the Christians in Corinth. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Not destruction and captivity and hell, but grace and peace are yours. And Paul can write that precisely because God in his love did rend the heavens and come down. The call of Isaiah is for him to do that and he did it. Not as a judge, not to destroy Israel, not to destroy evil and us and Isaiah because that's what should have happened. But he came down as a baby in his mother's arms of the same clay as you and me. A sinless baby shaped and molded so that he could pour the sin of humanity into him. The incarnate Savior who came to take our filth and our stench from our sin and God's anger and God's punishment for that sin in himself. This is why we can call God our Father. This is why I, as, a, as your pastor this morning, can announce for Christ's sake that God loves you, that God forgives your sins, that he has removed them as far as the east is from the west. God has laid his hands on us like a potter molding his clay. And we can say with all certainty that God is still molding us, still working with us, still has his hands on us, shaping and smoothing us each day of our lives. And he's doing that for a purpose. We may never understand the purpose. We may never see it. After all, he is God and we are not. But he's made each one of us just so, and in your baptism, he has written his name on you. He's claimed you as his own, as his own instrument for his purpose. And a potter doesn't make a pretty pot or a beautiful pitcher for no reason. And maybe you have a piece of pottery like that at home. Something that's been passed down from your mother, your grandmother, your great-grandparents. Maybe it's some pot that uh, someone used to always plant flowers in. Maybe it's a, a pitcher that uh, someone poured cool lemonade for you when you were a child. It's a treasured heirloom. And the piece is beautiful in its own right, but what makes it a treasured heirloom is the fact that your loving parent, grandparent, used it for a loving purpose. It's the, the way that the loving hands uh, poured out some blessing to you. And it's good to be reminded that we are the clay and that he is the potter. 
God isn't just molding us into a beautiful pottery for no reason. He's molding and shaping us carefully into blessings that can carry his grace and blessing to others. This Advent season, may we give thanks to the God who loves us, loves us enough to die for us, to rise for us, to remake us in baptism into beautiful creations, vessels that can be used to carry his love to the world. In the name of Jesus, amen.